I will ask the first question. I just said I wasn't going to ask any, but I'm going to ask the first one so we can break the ice. First one's always, If know. the leader asks the question, the ice is not broken. Oh. <laughs> well, Herb, okay. Herb, you can ask the first question. Okay, I have a question. <laughs> Could you, uh, you both share just a little bit about your story of how you came to struggle and wrestle with this and um, the difficulty of this doctrine of God's sovereignty and election? Shed a little bit of light on that. Yeah. Um, so I went to a non-denominational high school. Did everybody hear the questions? The question is, you know, how, how did I come to this point, a little bit of my story about how I came to the place where I'm at of compatibilism. Uh, I, I did not affirm the, in a sense, what you call full sovereignty of God of Romans 9. Um, in my teenage years and in my college years, and it wasn't really till I was early to... 20s, where I was more convinced of things, and, um, but I <laughs> I went to a non-denominational Christian high school, and we had an assignment to write about this topic. I don't know how it came up or whatever, and um, I had some Presbyterian friends. Shout out to my Presbyterian <laughs> friends, and they were like, "Yeah, God chooses people for salvation," and I was just like, mm, "Boy, that doesn't sound right to me," and. Uh, so my church wasn't you know, very particularly strong on that view. And um, so I just, I remember, remember those like black and white marble like took notebooks? What are those things called? Composition. Composition notebook. Was my, this was an English class, you know, go figure. Well, probably a good English teacher. She's trying to incorporate whatever. So I'm writing in my composition journal. And I went home and I like got all these passages out. And I started looking at the passages. I used the concordance like choose and election and predestination. So I started looking at all those things. I remember writing the essay being done and being like, well, it seems like the Bible talks about both of these things, so I'm not sure. That was my answer at like 17. And so that's kind of how my journey started with that. And then I have an older brother who's a pastor and a very capable theologian, very smart, very well read. And um, he started talking to me and it was helping me synthesize that stuff um, more clearly understand the context of the passage more and so early 20s I came to see more fully that yeah the sovereignty of God is full over people's salvation and their destinies um, while at the same time not mitigating as the compatibilist view says there so um, so yeah it's a little bit of my journey I also grew up not um, uh, believing or accepting the the way in which he sees God's sovereignty, specifically over man, and then in things like salvation, growing up, but more from ignorance rather than rejection. Uh, however, once I first became aware of the conversation, then it was definitely no longer ignorance, and it was outright rejection. Hmm. And for like a year, because in essence, this idea of God's sovereignty explained this way, I mean, you, like I grew up with people, well, God's in control of all things, but flushing that out in every layer of like life, and theology was never like a, a thing I did. So um, for for about a year, I fought hard against it because this God that I was now reading about and people were telling me about was very contrary uh, to the God that I had kind of like, in, in a sense, created in my mind. Maybe that might be too strong language, but 
at least the guy that I was, I think, introduced to, um, and then how I kind of filled in the blanks uh, with his character and his acts. Uh, so for about a year, I went on a mission with some close friends, in a loving way, to prove all of these Calvinists that they were wrong. <laughs> and actually, finally, I, um, I ended up sitting down with Pastor Mike, I don't know, like seven, eight years ago now, in North Dover, Chick-fil-A. And he walked me through what just happened here. Probably in a little bit more of a Calvinist way than a compatibilist way. Yep. Um, but nevertheless, I came back to this church where I was working, and I was like, Ellen. She was in fellowship called Queen. It's like, you want to hear something crazy? <laughs> and that at least softened my heart because he's working through scripture. I made a lot of phone calls to people, asked a lot of people. Honestly, though, it was a lot of prayer. I, during that time, had never actually, at that point in my life, I'd never read the Bible front to, front to back. And so I went on a mission to do that and did a lot of highlighting, reconciling, praying. And uh, there were a few pastors, too, in the preaching and teaching really clicked with me. And, yeah, then I'd like to think over the course of, maybe some of you guys have heard, like, the cage stage. Like, all of a sudden, like, you see things, you're like, oh, my goodness, that's amazing. And it's like you should lock them up in a cage. That's what cage stage is. <laughs> I had a really good friend of mine who said, you know, just be careful, Dave, um, because this type of doctrine and conversation can, is like a sword. It can just slice people's limbs off. There's attack and a winsomeness and a care that needs to come along uh, with this. And obviously there's more in the Bible than just things like election and predestination. Uh, and so there were some people who helped me. I did not always do well, but over the course of the last you know, six, seven years, I'd like to think I'm a little more tactful. And actually find myself, you know, being more of a compatibilist um, as well. Although, I think one is heavier than the other. Hmm. Yep. I'll explain that later. Mm -hmm. um, I think it might be helpful to, I'm not sure how familiar everyone is with terminology, but what is Calvinism and how does this necessarily relate to 9 through 11? Let me start and then Mike can explain. The first thing I say to that is, um, I don't know if I got this from you, I think it was from you. I think Mike, when we sat down in North Dover, I think I asked you, are you a Calvinist? And I'm pretty sure this was Mike's response. Why don't you tell me what you think a Calvinist is, and I'll tell you from that. <laughs> right. Uh, and so that's actually helpful because there's a lot of characters and a lot of opinions and misunderstanding of what those things are. You know, it also assumes like if you are reformed in doctrine, which goes beyond your view of salvation, um, or if you're, if you're a Calvinist and all of a sudden you're reformed and it's not. Calvinism is a way of understanding God's sovereignty in relation to salvation and man's responsibility that falls, you know, in that category. But I'll let Mike walk you through that. Yeah, I, I, I think that, I don't know, I'm not big on using the title. You know, John Calvin was a man, like many of us, he's very smart incredible theologian, not taking anything away from him, but, so I would still stand by that. You tell me what you think Calvinism is, and I'll tell you if I'm that. I would also say, if you're using those terms, and you're familiar with them, and you haven't actually read John Calvin's Institutes, you should zip it. <laughs> so, know what he said. 
like be, be a person of integrity. Like I have not read all the institutes. So I don't call myself a Calvinist. I don't use the term. I've read a bunch of it. Uh, I haven't read all of it though. Um, and so, you know, I just think there's a little bit of a danger. That's me. They may answer that differently. Most people though, if you talk about Calvinism, will talk to you about Tulip, which is kind of a summary of his teaching, which is total depravity. Human beings are, are, are fallen in every way is what total depravity means. Unconditional election, which means God chooses people not based on conditions. Limited atonement, which means that Christ died to save uh, the elect. Irresistible grace is that if you are one of the elect, God's grace will overcome any obstacle in your life. And then perseverance of the saints or preservation of the saints, depending on your um, view on that. But then God will keep you till the end. So that's a summary. One of the books that got handed out tonight was that um, uh, kind of going through that theologically. And there's tons of biblical foundation and basis for a lot of that. Um, so that is a starting point. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Logan. So historically, I know I know Augustine's view and uh, things like John Calvin and reformers, <coughs> but historically, outside of those figures, what has the church at large thought about this uh, soteriology, this issue of man's God's sovereignty and man's choice and free will? What, or, or is it just not discussed in Dr. Sean Wright is one of the best church historians, I think, uh, around. And he also, he has a whole bunch of literature actually on this. The doctrines of grace throughout church history. He mentioned at the beginning of his message, too, you know, like, throughout, this has always been a discussion as far back as we can read. You can go and find readings from the patristic period, the first 400 years of church history after Christ, you know, ascended um, through the Middle Ages, the Reformation today. And there are waves and ebbs and flows of these types of conversations. There's always been godly, influential people on both sides, as far as my reading study, um, that a- approach it with different nuances. Like sometimes they're, they're big disagreements, sometimes they're not. Like if you think about Pelagius, I'm really sorry because this is getting super educational, so I apologize. Pelagius was a man who is largely known as somebody who rejected the sovereignty of God and salvation, um, and believed very much in the free will of man, etc. And but then there became this group that's like, well, I'm not full-blown Augustine and I'm not full-blown Pelagius, and so I'm semi-believing. <laughs> it's like that is actually what you see. There have been times over in church history where the doctrines of grace, which in some ways is synonymous, it's like a nicer way to say Calvinist, right? Because of how maybe divisive or misunderstood that can be. Mm-hmm. There have been times in church history where this discussion is more prevalent than not. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in early America, um, among the Baptists, you had the particular Baptists, and they were known as like the Calvinist Baptists, and there's a whole group that wasn't a part of them, and that was one of the largest discussions from that time. And so that seems like there are and a lot of it depends on like what's happening in the world, what's happening in your you know local culture and government, how the Holy Spirit is maybe even correcting some things. Like one of the things I wrote down here, a perfect example, is 
I think that probably there are some of you in this room who, uh, let, me, let me start it this way. I think that might push more against the Calvinist view tonight than he did a human responsibility view. I think probably because of the current culture. However, I think that some of you tonight need to let Romans 9 push you more in your current situation. And then some of you need Romans 11 to push you more. And so I think that the Holy Spirit does that in different seasons of churches and cultures where there's just a move of the Spirit where, all right, we've got some really man-centered views of God, and so there's going to be an outpouring of discussion of sovereignty of God. And then there's like, hey, we have a whole lot of intellectual knowledge puffing up madness, and you guys are just in these circles, and nobody's loving and serving people, and you forgot how big and great God's call and mercy and forgiveness is, and so there's going to be another you know, move of, of God there. But it's always a problem. It's a great answer. Hmm. Yeah, I, I would even go back into the pages of Scripture. Yeah. I would think that whoever wrote oh, Hebrews, I would love to listen to him talk to Paul about Romans 9 through 11. Because hmm. I think Hebrews has a lot of stuff that pushes on that kind of full and entire sovereignty. And so I think there's, I, I love Dave's answer on the emphases. Um, one of the slides. That's back there. I take it you don't think Paul or Hebrews. Mm. No. <laughs> That's the worst. <laughs> um, there's a slide that maybe they get up there. Theological mysteries. Maybe it's the last one. Yeah. Theological mysteries solved by practical obedience. One of the reasons that these things exist, the, the sovereignty of God in Romans 9 exists to remind us as we sang tonight, from first to last, it's grace alone. Yeah. So there's no room for boasting. There's not one ounce of boasting. And human responsibility reminds us that we must strive to enter the narrow gate. Yeah. And that it's, there's not this fatalism. Mm. And so both sides of that reality ought to produce obedience. One in humble submission and the other in confident obedience. So we'll talk more about the function at, at the very end, but yeah. Great. Great question. Dr. Sean Yep. Josh, it really looks like you have a question. Uh -huh. Am I going to half-ask the question that we discussed uh, some video or whatever it was? Uh, can you talk about what your view of hardening is? Because looking at kind of all you look like Pharaoh, you look at Judas, like, there can certainly be the viewpoint um, of people who ask that God is causing or dating whatever word is used, individuals to sin or to reject his word, and that's an interesting topic you mentioned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um... Dave's assessment of my presentation wasn't even necessarily intentional. Is that's where I'm, I am a compatibilist. It's like at this point in my life, pretty much to the core. So when I look at Pharaoh, I see God announce beforehand that He's going to harden Pharaoh, mm -hmm. 
But then there's lots of language in that Exodus narrative that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And so it's easy to write off Pharaoh's responsibility in that, just assuming God's sovereignty. He talked about a weight one's weightier. I'm pretty much okay with that. There's kind of an asymmetrical relationship. This is, I'm now using D.A. Carson's language. It's not a 50-50. God doesn't show mercy, in my view, in the exact same way that he hardens. So God's mercy showing is intimate, personal, right there in front of you. I don't think that's how God hardens. I think God hardens by simply removing himself. It's, it's a passive reality of God. Again, I understand people disagree with this. And I, you say, well, where do you get, is that just like, <laughs> you pulling that from your pocket, Mike? No, I <laughs> think there is some scripture, specifically in Romans, by the way. Come on now. So it's a pretty good argument. It's right in the same letter. But in Romans 1, it talks about, for this reason, God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. But in, in that context, the human disobedience occurs first. So that's interesting. So my answer to that question is, I do think it's not, I don't think this, that God hardens in the exact same way that he shows mercy. I think God's sovereignty is over the hardening process, but there is Significant and essential human disobedience and rebellion involved there. That then, so God is therefore not responsible for their sin. He's not actively causing sin. That's my view. There's some, you know, I just read, you know, preparing for this a little bit. And I'm making Herb and Chase and Gannon read this chapter on if you want to get like philosophical about it. But let's say there's a 1 in 17 million chance. He used a cat in this illustration. So there's a revolver connected to a machine that there's a 1 in 17 million chance that when you hit start the machine, it'll shoot the cat. Sorry, cat lovers. I'm a dog guy, so this didn't offend me at all. <laughs> One in 17 billion, and you start the machine, and it just so happens it shoots the cat. Are you responsible? It's like, wow. There's a one in 17 million chance that I could do anything. So anyway, you can get pretty philosophical and pretty heady about that kind of stuff, but like, if God just started the world, you know, is he responsible for all of the evil that's in the world? I'm like, or is God actively causing all of the evil in the world? I think you're going to have a hard time showing that from Scripture. Is God actively sovereign over all of the evil in the world? Yes, I believe that. But again, that's where I go mystery. Where his, it's like kind of like, what is darkness? Is darkness a thing or is it simply the absence of light? What is evil? Does evil itself exist or is it just the corruption of what is good? And so those are the kind of reasons that I think that God's hardening is a bit distinct from how he shows mercy. There uh, is also, so just at the end of Romans 11, you know, how unsearchable are his judgments, mm-hmm. how inscrutable his ways. I think there's even a room to approach God's hardening, like in the, you know, you, you asked a really unique question, could Judas have repented? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. In Acts, it makes it sound like he couldn't. 
Like he was raised up this very purpose, like which is what it says in Romans 9, by the way, about the Pharaoh. Mm-hmm. And so are you guys familiar with the whole uh, relationship between when you're reading scripture, how you're interpreting scripture, the whole relationship between is this describing something or prescribing something, descriptive or first prescriptive? depending on what genre uh, you're reading in the Bible kind of helps you understand that. So uh, you know, narrative, for example, like the Gospels or Acts, while there are certain things in there that are like exhortations, would be like prescriptions, you ought to do this, this is normal, etc. There's a lot of the language in there in the story that is more describing stuff. So when I said it to say, Sometimes people look at them like Romans 9 or, or Pharaoh or Judas are like, so does God uh, condemn people in the same way he elects people? Does he choose people for damnation in the same way he chooses people for salvation? And they would ask, and they would use an example like Judas and Pharaoh. I think what Mike is saying, and I agree with that, is no. He does not. He is sovereign for both of them. I think. In my personal view, by the way, I think that actually the example of Judas and Pharaoh is description. Description, not prescription. For this very reason, I have raised him up for this purpose. You see almost identical language with Judas. You don't see that kind of language with other individuals or large groups. And even when it's talking here with Israel, there's this idea of them actually coming back and repenting. And him. You know, he consigned them to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. So I think the norm is that we are born in a depraved state in Romans chapter 3. The Romans 8 language is great. You saw this a couple weeks ago. Now, it's impossible for people in the flesh to please God. Mm-hmm. You just can't. You cannot make yourself right before God. That's total depravity. And so God has to initiate an act of mercy and grace towards me, open my eyes, give me a softened heart, grant me faith, and save me by His grace. Um, but I don't believe that the hardening that you see in Romans 9 through 11 is, in fact, you know, the, the first word of Romans 9 is that it's like a moral hardness. You become numb to wickedness, which is what Romans 1 is saying. Here you are, you know, giving this and giving this and more gives you up. You know, there's, a, there's a hardening that gives you over to immorality. There's a numbness, a dullness. I don't think it's the same that you see with Pharaoh or Judas where it's like I've chosen you necessarily for destruction. Other questions? I got one. Um, how can this doctrine be beautiful for the Christian and all that God intends it to be rather than something that seems to only create divisions? All right, we'll go to the function slides. Yeah, that's a great question. I do think there is. Romans 9 is about the closest you're going to get in the Bible. To where Paul like brings this topic up for for like a specific he wants to have an extended conversation about it. The other times that this topic comes up, he's doing something with it. It's how it functions. So getting it out of the philosophical and getting it to the practical, which I think is awesome. Thank you. Um, and you have to do both. The function of election number one it promotes worship. We sang that tonight. Like. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And there's this explosion of praise coming from Paul's heart and mouth. And then he says he's given us all these blessings for 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world for adoption. Now, isn't that beautiful? Are we just saying it's like he chose me. Aren't you so glad he chose you? Mm. Now, have you ever been in a lineup where you're like, you know, maybe this isn't a sports thing. Like the worst thing that can happen to you is like you get picked last, right? There was this one really important team I was trying to make. It was like for like from Virginia to Maine, they were selecting 30 players. And I was in the pool of 60. And you go to this room and they start calling players' names. I was the 30th one chosen. I was the last one. I didn't care. <laughs> I was chosen, you know? And that's like, don't we, and when you think about adoption, don't you think, oh man, that's beautiful, that's so awesome. Well, adoption is choosing. And so one of the things that, that election actually does is that you get to have this relationship with God where you know that he chose you personally. Mm. That is so cool. Mm. So second, next slide. Election promotes humility. And wouldn't you say humility is a beautiful thing? Mm -hmm. Being around the combination of proud and insecure people is one of the biggest challenges of my life. It's like what I deal with day, every day. No, okay. <laughs> it just came to the mind. He can say the same thing. No, but like someone who's always trying to prove themselves, it's very difficult to be friends with them because they're always competing with you, right? They can't just like, like be thankful for how great your gifts are. That's like so refreshing to be around someone who's not threatened by you. Um, humility is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And election produces that unlike any other doctrine in the Bible. <laughs> like you didn't get to be a Christian because of anything good in you. So you, you can't brag because you're rich. You can't brag because you're righteous. You can't brag because you have the right family. You can't brag because you have the right church. Nothing. The, the principle, the reality of election just cuts boasting off at the knees. So isn't that awesome? Like our church is, I think one of the reasons why the American church is so proud and has this swagger to it is because we've lost the function of election in many of the churches. Mm -hmm. And we don't come in every week just going, I can't believe he chose me. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Third, it promotes prayer. If you read Acts 4, the verses there, uh, a couple of the apostles had been beaten and threatened not to preach anymore. And they go and have a prayer meeting with their friends, and they say, oh, sovereign Lord. And so the fact that they believe in the sovereignty of God and that he's going to save even through persecution, it was their belief in the sovereignty of God in election that promoted their prayer. That it was like God is calling us into this relationship of prayer. So this idea that, well, if we believe God's going to do everything. You don't need to pray. It's the exact opposite in the New Testament. This idea that God was sovereign means that he can actually do something about my prayer. <laughs> he's, his hands aren't tied. Well, like, I don't really have control over those situations. No, he does. And so ask him. So fourth, this promotes evangelism. And I don't know. Oh, yeah. Acts 18. That's where the Lord appears to the apostle Paul in a vision and says, Paul's discouraged. And he says, keep preaching, Paul, because I have many people in this city. 
So the fact that God is, I, I, this happened to me this week, you know, I get discouraged, you share the gospel, people don't get saved. It's like in Dover and Smyrna, God has people that he's calling. And that's like, oh, okay, I better go open my mouth. Because normally when you talk to people about Jesus, they're like, ah, da, da, da. but every once in a while, it's like, oh, someone listens. It's like, well, what's happening? God's already arrived on the scene. He's already in the move. So it promotes evangelism. And lastly, and this is Romans 8, which you guys went through, you know, <laughs> he works together all things he works, together, he works all things together for good to those that love God and who are called. That's a synonym for uh, election, according to his purpose. And so when you're in the midst of the deepest, darkest trials and you're wondering, does God love me? Your answer is yes. He loved you before you were born. So he's not going to stop loving you now. And so in the midst of the deepest, darkest trials, when my sister died, we had, in a sense, the whole doctrine of race thing. Our family had just kind of like really gotten to see those and embrace them and see them as beautiful. And they sustained yeah. myself and my parents through a very tragic death. My daughter, or my daughter, my sister was 21 when she died in a car accident, just totally out of the blue. And yeah, we found incredible strength and in suffering from the fact that God was sovereign in all of that. So... Lots of reasons. And again, he's not talking about election in any of those passages. He's just encouraging the churches to become more Christ-like. And the doctrine of election functions in beautiful and powerful ways. Leave those there, uh, sir. Just a few words on that. One is that promotes worship. You know, John Piper, who has had huge influence for like the young restless reform. You know, kind of a new wave of, again, I'm sorry for using the word Calvinism, but that's fine. The term we're using here in some sense. Mm -hmm. He took a hiatus from teaching, wrestling with Romans chapter 9, was wrestling day and night. He talks about how well he used to come to bed. He's like, I can't go to bed. He's just wrestling with scripture, praying, 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 praying. Going cold and pastoral ministry. But before he did any of this, he's like, I need to settle what's going on in Romans 9 through 11, actually. And he says, it's as if in this moment he's praying, wrestling with the Lord. Many of you guys know this told before, but it's worthy of saying again. In his wrestling with the Lord, he said, it was as if the Spirit of God said him in the middle of his wrestling with Romans 9, John Piper, I will not be analyzed, I will be adored. And that is, again, the purpose of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, this 202 word run on sentence in the Greek. It's a doxological, mm -hmm. just run-on sentence of praise. The praise is glorious grace. The praise is grace. The praise is glorious grace. Three times it says it in those, uh, those verses. And so you know, he also says with humility, our theology is meant to flatten us. So promoting humility, it's like, yeah, aren't, aren't you grateful God shows you? The difference between Mike's illustration and what God did, and it's a beautiful illustration, by the way, but taking the next level, is Mike was good enough. He was worthy of being oh, the 30 guys right. in the soccer team. Oh, yeah. He, he had worked hard his whole life, was a very skilled soccer player, and so based on his merit and his work and what he could bring to the team, he was called by name. You know, the thing with us being chosen through election is that you were not good enough. You know, Romans chapter 5, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So this, this choosing, this election, is based on God's incredible mercy, not your merit. And the fact that he loved you while you were unlovely uh, is, is incredible. So that promoting humility, the promoting prayer thing, this is something that you said to me, I don't know if you remember it in North Dover, and you, you yours were Calvinist. Uh, I'm okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> Just listen. 
Um, he says, you know, people who, who have a problem, I don't know how you said it, so like, if this doesn't sound tactful, it probably wasn't. But um, he, he said, you know, people who don't like agree with or believe uh, the doctrines of grace, like if you're a Calvinist, everybody prays like a Calvinist. And so it's like, you know, if I've got a friend who has a sibling that is unsaved, and my friend is like, no, God is not sovereign of salvation. It is man's like responsibility primarily that is more important than God's sovereignty. It's like, well, you don't pray like that. And you know, I, I had one person tell me one time, and you know, I, I really this is an adult group, so I apologize for the, the term, but one person said, in this scenario of God's sovereignty, God rapes people's will. It's like by the way, it's not what you're seeing take place in scripture. Right. But the heart of that was, you know, God is unfair to make people do what they don't want to do. Paul's saying, no, people are doing what they want to do. And God in his grace kind of overcomes that. However, when you're praying for a lost person, I'm not praying, oh, Jesus, would you please respect my person's decision as they're rejecting you and they hate you? I'm actually saying, I want you to overcome their will. Mm-hmm. Who cares about their free will? I only want you to smack them in the face mm. and give them faith. Mm. And so the point is, you know, might be promoting prayer. Yeah. Mike says, even if you're not Calvinist, everybody prays in the Calvinist. You know, God, please change this person. Overcome their will and even their rejection. So just a, a couple things there. And by the way, I would, I would agree with the promoting strength and suffering. One of the biggest thing, themes of of Romans in general is God is a bigger God than you realize. Mm. And he's a bigger God than you ever realize. And his sovereignty is this massive umbrella of an attribute of who he is that is um, the most incredible gift of grace. Spurgeon says, you know, it's the sovereignty of God. It's the pillow that every believer can rest his head on at night. And that's the truth. He's in control. We done? I have two more questions. Oh, okay. I have two questions I think we should get to. Romans. I'm trying to read the room, but I didn't read Chase. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, from 9 through 11, there's more than just predestination that's talked about there. There's a big, a lot of stuff that goes on there. And there's some things that uh, we might have questions on. And I think one of them is the Jew-Gentile thing going on there. It almost sounds like there's two separate churches. So I want... Um, I kind of want to get your thoughts on that. Are we all part of the same church, Jew, Gentile? Like, how's that flush itself out? Yeah, I, I think he's trying to, I mean, probably house churches in Rome. And like most of us, they probably, you know, you like people who like you who look like you. Mm-hmm. And so Jewish folk got together and worshipped, and Gentile folk got together and worshipped, and you know, Paul viewed them all as part of the body of Christ, and he wanted them to be united. In chapter 15, he says, so that with one voice, you may glorify our God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, um, so yeah, probably that going on. And all throughout the letter, he's trying to show all the things they have in common. So in chapters 1 through 3, he says, listen, you're all guilty. You're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, that's referring to Jews and Gentiles. And then in chapters 4 and 5, you're all justified by grace through faith. 3, 4, and 5. So you're all guilty in the same way. You're all justified by the same way. And then chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, which you guys have just kind of been going through, 
You all grow in Christ the same way. You don't need the law. You just need the Spirit. And then in 9, 10, 11, he's like, you all have a place in God's program. So get along. And then 12 through 16, he's like, okay, now that you have this Christ, here's the practical application, specifically 14 and 15, that he addresses the Jew and the Gentile, like some of their hiccups and idiosyncrasies. And he's saying, hey, welcome one another in Christ. You know, second, third rank issues, put them aside, unite under one, you know, first rank issues. So, yes, there was division in the church. And a lot of what's going on in the letter of the Romans is to kind of undermine that disunity and rebuild it in Christ based on the, 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 the gospel story of Christ himself and then this overall big story of what God's doing with Jew and Gentile. So I think there's a lot for us in there. Um, you know, our church connected to other churches in town. There's things that are speaking to um, some of the challenges between the different ethnic churches. Uh, and, you know, you've got Latin churches or white churches or black churches. And I think, I think Romans speaks to all of that to say, hey, there ought to be more unity um, amongst the broader body of Christ than I think what we currently see in America. That would be my view. And I think this is a helpful thing to close on. And uh, it's been mentioned a couple times uh, as you guys were talking, but um, can we know that we are elect or chosen? And can we have that assurance of glorification? If you made it to the end. That's what Paul says. Now. There's plenty of things that Paul says that we should have that kind of assurance and we should live with hope. Um, but there are a lot of means that God gives you to like keep reminding yourself that you're in Christ. You know, we've been saying this thing these last six months that we say, keep believing. Mm-hmm. Keep believing. Keep enduring. And um, I think that there are enough warnings. In, do I believe that you can do salvation? No. Are there people who think they're saved that aren't? Yeah. And you see that in Matthew 7. And there's enough warnings and exhortations in Scripture that should make us all go, um, boy, I'm going to keep believing. So, I don't, I'm, look, I'm a preservation of the saints. I'm a perseverance of the saints guy. I do not believe in their salvation. Praise the Lord that Jesus loses none whom the Father gives him. Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God, Christ Jesus? Amen to all of that. But it's tough because a big blanket statement of you can't lose your salvation can end up being this justification in people's mind. I've lost at this prayer of believing these things. I go to church and therefore I can continue and linger on in my sin and my waywardness and my rebellion and da 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 And it's like, well, wait a second. Scripture is saying a whole lot of things about that. So I think the common thread that you see throughout Scripture is you are elect if you make it to the end. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. The Apostle Paul seems to have, a l- I think he has a little bit more clarity and authority than I would. Hmm. First Thessalonians 1, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We know he chose you. Why? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. So, Paul's like, here's how he knows if someone is elect or not, it's like when they hear the gospel, they respond to it. Now, you know, today at about 1130 in my office, a person just 
called out to the Lord for the first time in their life and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want a new life. <laughs> that was great. Now it's like they need to continue. As he said, they need to keep believing. So I, the question, you know, do you know, you know, can you have assurance? Yes, you can have assurance in this life. The assurance comes from faith in Jesus and the accompanying power of the Spirit. The question of can you lose your salvation, legacy Trinity people know, know what I'm going to say. It's the wrong question. Mm -hmm. The question is, will you obtain final salvation if you stop believing? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that question is no. Mm -hmm. You're not saved yet. You're in the process of being saved, and we're saved by grace through faith. And so that faith, when that faith comes to completion, uh, that's why I agree 100% with what Dave is saying, then, yeah. So there's a necessity to continue believing, but, so that might sound like a heavy burden. I've got to keep believing all the way. Yes, you do. But he who began a good work in you will complete it all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. There's lots of verses like that. Faithful is he who called you, who also will do it. So you must keep running, but he empowers you to run. So... Run, run, the law commands, but gives you neither feet nor hands. Better news the gospel brings. It bids you fly and gives you wings. Mm. Well, that poetry makes me not want to say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> but I will. <laughs> Two quick things. Second Peter chapter 1 answers this and shows us that tension. In verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. The knowledge of him who calls from the Lord excellence. He granted to us his precious, very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, escaping from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. That sounds like a whole lot of salvation talk. Amen. For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. Become like, well, what? Like what? Virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, love. And it's like, what does that sound like? That sounds like keep believing, keep working. You know, working out your salvation, fear and trembling. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 12, 13, it's God works in If these qualities are yours and are increasing, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, you're being saved. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind. Meaning, meaning he thinks he's in, and his life shows nothing like it. Forgetting that he was cleansed from his former sins, therefore, brothers... This is great. This is what Peter says. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and confirm your election. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. What do you say? You will reach the end. Mm -hmm. And so one of the means, you know, that the Lord does grant us ways where we can increase in assurance. When you see yourself bearing fruit of the Spirit, that should, that's the Spirit of God resonating my spirit that I'm a child of God. Mm -hmm. That's Romans 8, the context of suffering. The beginning of Romans chapter 5, when you endure uh, suffering, and that can be outwardly, it can be inward affliction and addiction or whatever it may be. When you overcome suffering, it says it produces document, character, realness. Character is a, a poor translation there. It's like it produces a sense of you where you go, whoa, I just endured suffering. I just said no to sin. I just passed the test. And then you're going, oh man, I'm real. And the more you do that, it says that kind of endurance produces hope, assurance. And so, keep believing. Mm -hmm. 
be all the more diligent to confirm your election. You want to close us in prayer, Mike? Yeah, right before that, I just want to give you a pastoral exhortation. This has been, you know, potentially a challenging night, lots of things said. Um, I just want to encourage you to be patient, uh, to be prayerful, to be humble. Um, just open to learning and growing. Like Dave said earlier, some part of the night might have pushed you one way or the other, and that's okay. Um, you know, if God were exactly how you expected him to be, <laughs> he would not be God. So um, it's okay to be pushed, to search the scriptures, to have patience. And we're not, um, you know, we don't want to also act like we're forcing this particular view on you or something like that. Like, I, I think we've done a really good job of being scriptural tonight to try to argue from the scriptures. Obviously, we read three chapters together tonight. And so we are definitely, as a congregation, wanting to move forward and learn and grow and let these truths push and shape us. And so mm. I just want to encourage us to be patient and humble. And, um, you know, we don't need to get, um, you know, we don't need to have our hair on fire about this particular issue. And I certainly, one of, the, one of my concerns about tonight, honestly, was I don't want this to be divisive. Mm. Okay. I do not want this issue to be divisive among young adults. I don't want the issue to be divisive uh, in the congregation as a whole. Um, that would run completely contrary to everything that that passage stands for. And so uh, may the Lord grant us unity. Let's pray. Amen. Father, um, to you belong the secret things. Mm, right. Your ways are inscrutable. Your judgments are unsearchable. And so we humble ourselves before you tonight. We honor you as the sovereign Lord, creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And we acknowledge that you have the right over every person's life in this room, including my own. Mm. And we acknowledge that you have created us in your image and given us responsibility to trust you, obey you, know you. And so, Lord, I pray that you might be merciful to us and grant us faith to do exactly that, to trust you, know you, and obey you. Amen. And I pray that, we, that such uh, knowledge of you, uh, by your mercy, would lead us to love one another deeply, to love our neighbor as ourself, and to actually be made in the very likeness of Jesus, mm -hmm. to walk as he walked. And so, Lord, we thank you uh, for the presence of your spirit. We thank you for the gift of your word. Uh, Lord, help us to stick close to to you and to it. Mm -hmm. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thanks, guys. Thank you all.